I'm Mike Lewis. I'm here with uh, DW or Dave Lafferty, one of the Daves I know. And um, <laughs> we are also here with uh, where Peter is contributor, Paul Fahey, who is coming to us from Michigan. I am Mike Lewis. Uh, the editor of wherepeteris.com. This is The Critical Catholic. Um, and so here we are today. Our topics on The Critical Catholic, a place where Catholics come together to speak about... We should really have like a tagline, don't you think, Dave? All right, yeah, yeah. Come up with that before we went live, but I'm like... Yeah, yeah this is not the time to brainstorm, I think, but 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 that's okay. We'll... we'll, we'll uh... Well, we'll if any it. of our uh, listeners or viewers would like to put a tagline in the comments, be my guest. Um, I don't mean to come to your show and, and then be critical, but you also need a new theme song, I think. This is the first time I heard it at normal speed, because usually I listen to the podcast at one and a half speed. It's better at that speed. You know oh. what? I thought it's funky. It's kind of like I was thinking like I wanted like a 1978 like... I don't know, low budget detective show vibe. And I thought I captured that. So um, that's what I think that's what Dave wanted. I'm into it. I'm into it. I like it a lot. I'm into it. It's a little gets in the zone for this. It's if it's sort of like an alarm clock in some ways. Um, you yeah. know, it, if, if you were asleep, you're not anymore, but you might not be happy about <laughs> being awake at, at one and a half speed it moves into the like mid to late 90s and that's more my era so uh okay yeah a little more uh, up tempo yeah dave and i are are, are 1970s kids you're like so kids. yeah you're, so you're older than geriatric millennials yeah, yeah i was born in uh july 1979 so i am not a millennial technically speaking although on the website millennialjournal.com I qualify because I was born in the JP2 era. That's their cutoff. But every other cutoff, I am technically that's why I that's why I actually like Oregon Trail Generation, because kids born from 1977 to 1983 or so, which is really, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we grew up watching He-Man. Um I mean, I played Oregon Trail as a kid on my dad's DOS computer. No, 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 no. We had computer class. It was they would they would shuffle all twenty four of us into the computer lab where they had the Apple IIe's set up, where we would each choose a three and a half inch disc and pop it into a workstation, and the the luckiest kids got Oregon Trail. Well, no, the luckiest kid got Space Quest too, but there was only one copy of that. But there were like thirty copies of Oregon Trail, so that's what we wound up playing. Anyway, um. Dave, uh, yes. why don't you why don't you, why don't you why don't you kick us off? Give us a give us a prayer. Give us a topic. Introduce this guy in the middle right here. Uh, All right. Well, just to, to get us going, we'll we'll do our, uh, our our prayer that we usually do at the beginning. So, um, in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, please guide us in our discussion. Help us to dispel confusion, discern fact from fiction, and cleave to the truth. Allow us to contribute to the creation of a healthy Catholic media culture. Amen. Amen. Name of Father, Son, Spirit. Amen. So, um, welcome, Paul. 
It's nice to see you here again. Uh, or, well, for the first time on our show, but uh, I always enjoy talking with you. Um, so, I don't. <laughs> no, yeah, Mike hates it. So but this time, but I, I, I'm I had looking to, forward to this. This yeah. the painter pace, though. I might enjoy myself this time. I had to Although con- he had to did make him. fun of my song selection. So right off the bat, <laughs> um, not a so, good way to start. One of the reasons that you know we thought it would be cool to have you on is you've written on this idea of Christendom and the role that Christendom plays in the the Catholic imagination. So just before we get to that, though, I thought I'd just offer a really brief introduction about what we're hoping to to address tonight. So um, what we're going to be looking at is uh, maybe a, a kind of conspiracism that's related to this idea of Christendom and this idea uh, that the church has lost a lot of power. Um, and uh, some people in the church uh, are, are trying to regain that power in whatever, in whatever way they can, even if it's sort of an imaginary uh, version of Christendom. Um, and, and we're going to look at some of the, the conspiracy thinking that, that can come out of that. Um, so just to start off with, like when people start talking about Christendom, um, you're up, right away. We're getting into a sort of like grandiose mode of thinking, right? So we're we're talking about um, you know the dominion of the the Catholic Church and the authority of the the Catholic Church. Um, and when we're talking like this, and we're talking about the Church in general, we all have a tendency to to generalize and and you know make these kind of sweeping statements, and um, and that includes you know when we're talking about the enemies or who, who we consider to be the enemies of the church and the ideologies that, that we oppose. Now that's not all that unusual in, in Catholicism. You know, a lot of popes in the past have spoken that way, you know, offering these sort of blanket condemnations of all sorts of social and political movements or great civilizational shifts. Um, although recent popes have been more restrained in that regard. I think over time, the, the position of the church becomes more subtle, more complex. Um, but I think, we have a situation now where this sort of grandiose thinking and language, you know, which really has its home and maybe like more like the 19th century when, if we're talking about the church, it's infected politics. And then is in both politics and the church these days, we've seen this a lot on the right. And there are some, you know, clergy who are modeling this language. So people like Archbishop Vigano, Cardinal Mueller, uh, Cardinal Burke, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. I mean, reading their stuff, they're they're truly pontificating when they talk. Um, they're talking in these grand, like kind of world historical terms, you know, um, about you know these huge battles of good versus evil and and the role of the church and and that sort of thing. Um, when when you look when you look to the writings of Pope Francis, although he does make some very prophetic statements, sometimes he doesn't tend to use that sort of language. So I think, you know, when and, and, and this is the same for, for you know, popes of the, you know, really ever since, you know, Vatican II. Um, and, you know, I think that these people like Archbishop Vigano, and um, they're really what Pope John the uh, 23rd referred to as the, the prophets of, of doom. You know, this was the idea that, that we're trying to go beyond this sort of um, condemnatory view of society where we're just kind of issuing these you know, grand declarations that just, you know, condemn entire uh, ideologies and movements and uh, other religions and that sort of thing into something more 
subtle. Um, so what we see when we, we see this coming up again, it's almost like we're seeing the voice again of a church that claims dominion over all people, um, but it also is suffering from this kind of persecution complex, I guess you could say, because the actual power of the church and the actual power of Catholicism has been, you know, greatly weakened over the course of the centuries. So, Paul, you wrote about the how there's been a change in thinking in the church on this front. And, and this was in a piece um, that you wrote for, for where Peter is called The Church's Mission and the Allure of Neo-Christendom. And you you quote um, Austin Ivory, who who said that you know Pope Francis follows the thinking of the the Second Vatican Council in believing that quote the primary focus of the Church should no longer be on the defense of neo Christendom. So I'm wondering if you could span expand a little bit um, on this idea of neo Christendom and the role it plays, and maybe how um, someone like Pope Francis or the Pope since Vatican II have been trying to move beyond this idea. Yeah, thanks, Dave. The, the, the rest of that quote from, from Austin is said is because neo-Christendom is all about power. Um, and I think that's the key thing. Um, there were two things that really got me thinking about this idea of Christendom. Um, and both of them, it, it was right after the, um, the riot at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, I was on... A, a friend's Facebook page the week after, and they had posted about, you know, like, look at all the crosses and Christian signs that were at this mob. And we're in the midst of this mob and Christians, we need to repent of this, right? And and someone commented, and he's a professor at, um, at um, Big Catholic University. And he said, um, on, on this public post, and he, like, without any type of shame, he said, um, I'm not going to repent, right? To be welcomed, this is a quote, to be welcomed in the halls of power and protected by the people in them is something I will forever be grateful for, right? Um, and I'm like, you said the thing that you're not supposed to say out loud. <laughs> um, but was he there? Was that, is that what he was, was he actually present or or was he just in favor of Yeah, he of was, the, the, the context of the discussion was, hey, hey, Catholics, hey, Christians, we should be repenting of hitching our wagon to Trumpism. And he's like, absolutely not, because they gave me, meaning conservative Christians, a seat at the table again, right? Um, and I think, so I think power is the key thing. And around that time, um, I mean, that quote really struck me. because I'm like, he just, he just said the real thing. Like, that's the truth. That's the mentality. And I was reading um, Pope Benedict's famous uh, when he was, I think, Father Ratzinger, back uh, in the 60s, late 60s, I think, the, the the radio address where he talked about, he envisioned the future church, right? And he talks about how um, the church is going to lose um, the spaces of power that it holds in society now. Um, and in, in the number of adherents will, will decrease, and the church is going to lose her social privileges, right? Um, and I heard this, this statement or this um, homily back in college. And back then, my impulse was to think, yeah, I'm in that smaller church. You know, we got to get rid of all those, all those liberals and all those heretics. And it's us pure, faithful, orthodox people who are going to be there. But he goes on to say in that article, he's like, 
he almost he doesn't outright say that this is good right but he says the church of the future is going to be more faithful because it's going to be a church of saints right and this reflects um a, a last week david french wrote a great article um and he was and he was quoting um uh soren kierkegaard who talked about how christianity gets better the more that christendom decreases right because christendom is all about maintaining spaces of privilege and power in society and when that becomes the primary mission of christianity we compromise our integrity in order to do that and we turn the christianity into another ideology or an, or another political movement and we compromise our values when we do that and the instances of this in the past you know few years are numerous but in, instances of this throughout the history of the church are numerous when the church tries to maintain its space of power so i think what vatican ii did and obviously what pope francis carries on is we need to look to the early church right resource mod and the early church had no social privileges and no social power and yet it spread like wildfire wildfire in the first few centuries in the roman empire because of its credibility because of its witness because of not having a persecution complex but actually being persecuted for the sake of its values and in and in um, the radical integrity that it had. Um, so I think that's that's the shift that Vatican II was moving the church in, and Pope Francis certainly carries forward, is we're not interested in grasping at this, these social privileges that, um, that we once held, that have even been taken from us. And there's a sense of mourning, right? Because, hey, we built the hospitals, we built the universities, we built this culture, and now it's being ripped from us. And I kind of get the sense that Vatican II and Pope Francis are like, that's fine. Actually, it may even be better if they're stripped from us, because what we need is something pure. And you, you might even say that this is something that's played out in church history over and over again, um, that when the church does acquire uh, temporal power and um, it's able to sort of solidify its position, um, a kind of stasis sets in and then eventually a sort of corruption. And then you get... Um, you know these big events happening right like the uh the protestant reformation and, the, and that that sort of thing um where you get this sort of falling away because people can no longer connect to the institutional church it seems so distant from what how they actually experience christianity and i mean i think that's what kierkegaard was talking about i i don't I, i'm not super familiar with with kierkegaard um but i do know that he lived at a time where um, i forget exactly where he lived in europe but um the church was heavily institutional and you know the, the so um everyone went to church and everyone kind of just did their thing and it was just totally normal that um that that you know everything revolved around the church but it was it was completely dry it was completely void of any real personal connection it was it was just something that was taken for granted and you know he was looking for that um that sort of raw existential connection to uh god that um he was was missing from this institutionalized version of the church so that's uh, i think that's a really interesting thing to to, to bring into the discussion I, and and I just chose to highlight um, this one quote from your piece, Paul, uh, that the Catholics who are pining for privilege and influence, who want to win back spaces of power, 
they correctly see that the Pope doesn't support their efforts. I think that that's uh, one of the one of the factors here. Um, it's interesting because we have this this whole integralist reaction. We have these uh, traditionalists who are in favor of an authoritarian church. And the paradox that they're facing right now is that Pope Francis, in a way, well, he's not the type of authoritarian that they want. I think that the Pope, by his nature, has authority. And, you know, I, people have debated over whether I remember Dan Amiri and I had a had a conversation like, well, is Pope Francis an authoritarian pope or is he not? And I think while he enjoys the discussion and the dialogue and seeing where the the movement of the Holy Spirit is, and there's this whole talk about synodality, um, not just talk, but it's it's his vision. His vision is one of a synodal church, but he is very clear. And I, you know, he used the phrase, the Pope is the guarantor of it all in the 2014 Synod. Like, this is, this is, this is the reason why we can trust the synodal process is because it's with and under Peter. And we as Catholics, doctrinally speaking, especially in light of what, uh, you know, was taught at Vatican I and then the subsequent popes. It's that the Pope is the guarantor of orthodoxy. The Pope has divine assistance, even in his, uh, like Pedro Gabriel's pointed out, even in his disciplinary decisions, we believe that the Pope, maybe he's not making the wisest or most prudent decisions necessarily, but it, he is, um, but the Pope does receive divine assistance throughout his, his papacy. And I think Pope Francis very much embodies that. And the problem and is, it, what he's doing is not what they want him to do. Yeah. He, he also has an authority, even even if you set aside his magisterial authority. He has authority in the world because he's credible, right? Um, I remember I was at a conference several years ago, and um, Sherry Waddell was there. She's the author of Forming Intentional Disciples. And she was talking about... Um, she had a team of people, um, evangelists who were just striking about conversations with people at the big papal mass in Philadelphia, the Pope visited. Um, so she sh shared some of that experience. She was like, yes, we had people who, who went to that mass and, and I was at that mass. My wife and I were able to be there and you had to wait in line for hours to get a spot. I mean, mass among the like, million people on the highway, right? I mean, yeah. It was so, so mass was like four in the afternoon and you had to be there at like nine in the morning, right? So they were talking to people. They're like, hey, why are you waiting in line and stuff? Are you Catholic? And they're like, no, I'm not Catholic. So why are you spending your entire day out here in line? Oh, I love what this, what this Pope says about the environment. And I just want to hear more, right? They were like, this place was right for um, evangelistic conversations because the Pope already had trust built and credibility um, because of his teaching, but also because of his way of life. So I think that's the... Like the, the church is no longer about, or the church of this generation isn't about um, the Holy Roman Empire. It's about church's field hospital. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Pope Francis, he, he doesn't exercise his authority, which he does have that authority. He doesn't exercise it as like a monarch. He exercises it as a servant. I think that's the role that he sees himself playing a lot of the time. Um, so he's giving of himself uh, first and, and, 
placing humility first. And I mean, that's really, that's following the model of Jesus, I think, um, who had that authority that came through that humility and that, you know, willingness to uh, serve others. Um, now, if people are looking for, uh, you know, this authoritarian Pope, and, and I think that, you know, they would have been disappointed with a lot of the Popes in the, you know, recent, you know, relatively recent past as well. Um, if they can't there find is it, no there is no sense of history no there's no sense no it's uh because you know it's not like uh pope benedict or pope john paul ruled as like monarchs you know they they still had that that same um posture of humility is i mean probably pope francis is the one who has taken it the furthest um and it's it's most apparent with him i, um, I think he perhaps recognizes the value of it Right. Yes, I think, yes. I think they're exaggerated gestures because he knows that that's important. Yes, yes, like kissing the feet of you know people and politicians. I've seen that. Um, it's uh, it's it's pretty startling to see. Um, uh, but if if he's not living up to their idea of what a pope should be, this sort of authoritarian figure who just issues condemnations, um, they will construct their own version of either Francis. Um, and I think that some of the uh, integralists that I, I've read do this. They they use they read Pope Francis esoterically to place him within their integralist framework, um, and it, it requires a lot of sort of really you know twisty logic to um, to to position him that way. Um, and it, it, now at least though they they recognize Pope Francis as the Pope, but you know others who 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 don't um, who are looking for something even better, they will turn to someone like Archbishop Vigano, who's become a sort of counter-pope for the, you know, disaffected um, traditionalists. And I think that's where you can, in both of these cases, things can get very dangerous because you're, you're, you're dealing with a sort of imaginary pope, you're dealing with an imaginary version of the church. It's not really one that's rooted in the church as it is right now. And so you're, you're entering into this sort of mythical realm where um you're, you're fighting maybe imaginary battles and that's where i think a lot of the um conspiracism and a lot of the twisting of reality um can come into it and and that's where i think you know as catholics we we have to keep our our, our critical faculties sharp in order to recognize well what's the First of all, let's look to the church as it is. Let's look to the person who is actually Pope, what he is saying, and you know what other people in the hierarchy are saying, and work with that to begin with, not work with this imaginary version of the church that that we have in our heads. That's why you know the a lot of traditionalists are just endlessly railing against the bishops because you know the bishops could never in a million years live up to what they think a bishop should be doing and uh, the Pope could never live up to what they think a Pope should be doing. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a theme that, you know, comes up again and again is that there's a lot of people who have a sort of imaginary version of the church they're defending. Sometimes they'll try to squeeze Pope Francis into that vision. Um, other times they'll just reject Pope Francis entirely and find someone else who can play that, that role. So, so one of the questions I ask is, is why? Like, what motivates someone to to want this strong man pope, right? To want, and I think it's wanting a sense of of security. Uh -huh. So I I I work in parish ministry. Um, I don't do spiritual direction, but 
spiritual conversations, I don't know, with, with lots of people. And um, like one of the basic spiritual principles, which you could call critical thinking, but it's like discernment of spirits, right? Um, someone has uh, someone has a specific desire or opportunity, but something that they're discerning. And one of the questions is, uh, is the good spirit motivating this or behind this desire or the bad spirit, right? And what are the signs of one or the other? How do you tell? And what one of the key things that unmasks the bad spirit is fear. Are you acting out of fear? Um, because the Lord doesn't prompt fear. The good spirit doesn't bring us fear. May challenge us, certainly, but not fear. Um, fear comes from the bad spirit. And I think that there's a profound sense of fear, both amongst those seeking conspiracies and amongst those who are, are wanting this strong man church, those who are afraid of losing the seats of privilege and power that the church once held. Maybe the church will be irrelevant. Maybe the church will even be persecuted and there's fear of persecution. Um, I think of uh, uh, Cardinal George and the, the saying that he says where he's like, I'll die in my bed and my successor will die in prison and my six and their successor will will die a martyr. I hear people quote this with almost a sense of like, um, that's where it's going, folks. You know, we got to prepare for this type of persecution. And, but there's I think there's this real fear behind it. Um, but I think ultimately that comes from a lack of trust in God's his his power and his providence and especially a lack of trust in the promises he's made to the church, right? The indefectibility of the church and the promise that the church is going to prevail. I think, and not to, not to dial back too far and not to get too high up on, on my soapbox, but I think one of the things you said when you described uh, what Sherry Waddell had to say, you know, the people that she was encountering at that Philadelphia mass. Um, and one thing that Pope, Pope Francis had a had had a very strong sense of that I don't you know I don't know that that Benedict maybe had that same sense or that same concern but was the understanding of contemporary people and and what motivates them and what inspires them and what um you know where we can find that common ground I mean yes care for creation uh climate change uh, making sure that you know that our environment that we're that we're good stewards of the earth um that's all that's all crucial the question is why has pope francis made it such a priority well i think i think part of the reason is is this is where the catholic church and the um and the far left or progressives or uh, atheists, it's, it's, it's a really strong area of common ground and the religious, uh, religious people in terms of environment. I mean, it's a, it's a huge movement that maybe doesn't get as much attention in the U S but if you go to Africa, if you go to Latin America, and we're not talking about leftists here, we're talking about like people who really do care about the poor. And I mean, the, the, the whole issue of climate refugees people who's uh who's you know people in 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 latin america people in africa who are forced to to migrate because the land is no more no longer farmable or because uh natural disasters have wiped out the area i mean pope francis understands this and and he sees it as a point of confluence a point where our common 
our common aims and our fraternity cross over. And yet this um, reactionary, this this conspiratorial, this uh, neo-traditionalist movement pushed back so hard against what Pope Francis was trying to do there. And and I also felt like there were so many things that he did early on that resonated with people. And they did almost everything in their power to break people's trust of him. I mean, you think about appealing to, like early on, I think there were a lot of, uh, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, conservative Catholics who were trying to give Pope Francis the benefit of the doubt, despite the fact that there were a lot of um, a lot of traditionalists and and a lot of commentators who turned on him very early on, who were saying negative things about him very early on. But then they were able to uh, stoke fear in anticipation of the of the Synod on the family, and you know they got to a few church leaders like like cardinal burke and and some of you know some of these other church leaders to really really uh you could sense they were they were fearful of what would happen they were fearful that the spirit of the world or whatever would enter the church that the spirit the smoke of satan would enter the church um and and i think you know so that's why i pinpoint the dubia as that first moment of where they were able to uh, break the trust of the Catholic people towards Pope Francis. They were able to convince them that Pope Francis was some kind of heretic or some kind of heterodox person. The real breaking point, however, because that's sort of a nitpicky um, niche, niche, niche issue that most most Catholics and most people around the world don't care about uh, all that much was the Vigano testimony. The the um, they were able to take that goodwill and take the one, you know, take the issue that people globally inside the church, outside the church, the biggest negative, the biggest thing that can harm the church in the modern era is um, sexual abuse and the cover up of sexual abuse. And they were able to take this uh, vegano narrative, which you know, even though it was debunked largely within two days, and even though uh, the McCarrick report shows that he's he's actually one of the people that's most at fault for what happened with McCarrick, for McCarrick not coming to justice prior to Francis's papacy. Um, I think that that really uh, did a great deal of harm to the opportunity to evangelize in the church. I think and and it's almost so it's like they were trying to work against the pope's efforts to evangelize because they didn't see eye to eye with his vision and i think you know a lot of this stems from the fact that for people who are looking for something to ease their fears ease their feeling of powerlessness and inferiority um pope francis is not offering them a lot because and I've I've had to come to terms with this as someone who like I really I considered myself a conservative and 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 a fairly you know a deeply conservative person um, and conservative Catholic and over time it, I've had to come to terms with the fact that conservatism although I do still believe that there are good forms of conservatism it can be a cover for 
uh, fear and insecurity and feelings of powerlessness and wanting to to dominate uh, others, um, a kind of like resentment based um, ideology. And so anything that um, can help to separate the church from the rest of society is good for a conservative because it gives, you know, it gives you this feeling that you're standing against the culture, that you are special, that you are, um, you know, you're rejecting all of this, you know, modern nonsense. And, uh, you know, Pope Francis, he's not letting people do that. He's, he's, he's telling people, no, actually, you know, we have to cooperate on stuff like climate change. We have to, um, <laughs> we have to look to find paths for establishing human fraternity with people from other religions and uh, other cultures. And, you know, and this is so unappealing to um, <laughs> the, the conservative mind in some ways, right? Like, cause you, you're not special then you're not, you're, you're working with the people that you really hate. Um, and yeah, we want homilies about how bad helpful. the world is. Yes. And how great we are. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's right. The real problem is not, racism the real problem is atheism yes <laughs> yes because everything comes down to to people not being holy enough like we are you know like that's you know as, as if that's the solution to everything i mean well maybe in the, like a, a certain sense it is but um practically speaking on the ground no um so you know i mean david french in, the, in that article that you mentioned and this was um uh Oh, I don't know if I have the title of it, but it was yeah. on uh, American Christendom. Yeah, here it is. How how American Christendom weakens American Christianity. Yes, how Amer yes um, how weakens American Christianity. And he talked about, you know, how, I mean, he, he's been very concerned about how evangelical Christians jumped on the Trump bandwagon, um, especially after, you know, the, their initial reaction to Trump was one of horror and uh but something happened and they decided, oh, actually, maybe well, Catholics is a guy. And Catholics too jumped on it. Um, and 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 I'll admit what at, at first I was like, all right, well, let's try this Trump thing and you know, like let's see what happens. And um it's, it's better than Hillary. which one of us is breaking easy for up. you to stay up in Canada. <laughs> yeah, it's easy for me to say. I was like, I was like watching from the sidelines and I was like, all right, Trump, cool. Um, and uh but um, I, I didn't quite realize just how far this would go and just how, how bad it was. Now, he says, there's one quote that I, I took from his article. He said, he says, what if white evangelical Christendom had said no? What if the institutions of the faith had opted to lay down their political arms rather than wield the tr weapon of Trump? What if they had said they would rather risk persecution than inflict pain, that they would rather lose their power than defend lies? And to me, that's really powerful because I've seen, and that's what really has, you know, it's been such a an incredible um, faith challenging experience, but ultimately, I think a, a, a good experience in the end um, is seeing how people jumped onto the the Trump bandwagon and then also defended outright lies and told lies and spread misinformation, all because that might help you know, particular Catholic cause, or it might help, you know, boost the, the image of the, uh, the church or, or further a sort of traditionalist or integralist um, vision. Um, and, and to me that it, it really crossed the line because, you know, that's one of the things that I feel is, is so important to Catholicism that we can't defend lies. That's not 
how Catholics work. We're very strict when it comes to lying. You know, it's, um, it's, I mean, lying is intrinsically wrong. It's an intrinsic evil. Um, and so to, to use that for any purpose, um, it really can't be justified according to Catholic thinking. So I think, you know, that, that leads us into this, this realm of, of highbrow conspiracism that I wanted to talk about. Um, if we, Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Bill. I, um, that passage from David French stood out, and it, it, it goes along with another passage where he's talking about um, a sexual abuse in an evangelical church, and, right? And so he asked the question, what if the institution decided to die? So he said, what if it decided that its continued existence was irrelevant compared to the necessity of repentance and justice, and it should close before it denied truth and restitution to the children? who were so terribly victimized on its grounds. The institution of Christendom might wither away, but would such a profound act of humility and obedience actually harm the faith, right? So I think even greater than Trump, especially in the Catholic Church, was this emphasis on grasping at our, on grasping at not losing power um, at the cost of covering up the abuse of kids, of saving the institution, because what if the institution fails? And in doing so, not just harming people, maybe the worst way you can harm people, but just destroying the church's credibility for decades, and who knows how many more decades, right? Um, to me, this is the epitome of choosing Christendom over Christianity, over, over the gospel. And that, and that's a huge part of the the tragedy of the abuse crisis is that we saw, you know, for decades um, that every effort was made to cover things up to minimize um, what happened. Uh, that's that's something that often happens, you know, like oh well, you know, abuse happens everywhere. It's not just in the church, you know, like that sort of stuff. And then you know there was it was really a concerted effort um, to to cover it up to make excuses. Um, to sometimes portray the people, the the victims, or the people who were bringing attention to this problem as enemies of the church, as anti-Catholic, and I mean, I think that was that was maybe even more prevalent, like in the two thousands or so. Like I remember that sort of discourse in in you know Catholic media, and and um, and then eventually um you know i think we're slowly coming to terms with it and realizing that no no this 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 was a a really world-shaking problem that we went through my fear this is my own fear talking about spiritual discernment uh my fear is that um the the institutional church hasn't learned its lesson Uh, so right now the uh, attorney general in my state is finishing up their own report on all the dioceses in my state and from the report so far it's supposed to be really bad and um i mean i'm generally i don't know uh like i i don't think the church has learned its lesson at this point i think there's still going to be things that they haven't brought to light and they're only going to bring to light because they're forced to and And, and bring it all up again and we're probably going to continue to have, you know, people like uh, Archbishop Vigano who will try to weaponize the uh, abuse crisis in order to, I mean, in his case, he really tied it to this idea of a homosexual conspiracy within the church, um, implying that, you know, any 
priest who happened to be uh, homosexual maybe necessarily had this sort of proclivity for um, abusing children and um, trying to, to show that this was like endemic and this was going all the way up to the Pope potentially. Um, that was the kind of narrative that he was pushing forward. And it was extremely powerful. It, it, it caught a lot of people's attention. A lot of people believed it right off the bat. And it took them a while to um, realize that, you know, Vigano was constructing something that in his own self-interest. Um, and I, I want, and sorry about, I'm, I'm back. My, uh, hopefully it was only me who was having the technical issues because yeah, it was, I, it's fine. Yeah. Because you guys were breaking up on me like crazy. So I don't know yeah. if our audience could see, but, um, I, you know, I've talked to several, um, priests actually, who maybe weren't following, um, the, the, in, the intra-church wars prior to Vigano very closely, but they had no reason to distrust Vigano. And, um, in a lot of cases, his testimony had, um, and and they've since kind of come back or they've realized that he was unhinged. But at the time, he had, he, he really put his grips into people. It's like he really did a great deal of damage. Um, I mean, I knew, I knew that a lot of what he was saying wasn't true because I live in the Archdiocese of Washington. I worked for the USCCB. I, I was there prior to Francis's election and saw McCarrick operating pretty freely. Uh, you know, he'd show up at, at various events at ordinations. And, you know, I even saw him in Rome, you know, at a, at a big event and there were no sanctions on him, but other people, I, I think it was sort of like they, they were wary. They were, he, he really captured um, fears that maybe people had, had buried deep down. And then because he was being so sensational and because he was so insistent and because certain parts of the Catholic media were pushing uh, his narrative, you know, CNA, EWTN, uh, the, you know, the, the usual suspects, the National Catholic Register were all life site, especially were pushing his narrative. And, um, and, and man, he has a lot to answer for. Yeah, I mean, and once, once again, it comes back to this idea of fear, right? It's uh, um, this idea that there's a conspiracy, in this case, a homosexual conspiracy of pedophilic uh, priests who are trying to destroy the church um, from within. Um, and it, that really plays into um, a lot of suspicions that people have and uh you know like kind of their darkest um you know fears and worries um and he brought that all out into the light and tried to give it some legitimacy um and it was yeah extremely powerful um uh, just to i don't want to um shift too rapidly here but um i was thinking maybe this ties into some of the stuff that I'd like to talk about regarding this idea of highbrow conspiracism. Oh, I was going to um, make that transition. But you were going to transition, yeah, okay, cool. was, but you know, you did it, so it's well, good. We're, we're on that was topic, a, that was a topic two. We have fifteen minutes left. That was we that was that was barely a transition um, that I that I made. But um, so I, I came across this this article by Laura Field, Laura K. Field um, from the Niskanen Center. It's a uh, uh, think tank, um, and 
It's called uh, The Highbrow Conspiracism of the New Intellectual Right, a sampling from the Trump years. And I thought this, it, it, well, for one thing, it, it addresses some, some Catholic uh, commentators that we are familiar with. And um, it, it, it really seemed to fit in with what we've been talking about. Um, so she, she describes, first of all, this, the, the, what she calls the, the new conspiracism of the Trump era. And she's, she's actually quoting um, a couple of authors here, Russell uh, Moorhead and Nancy Rosenblum, for the, uh, with this idea. Um, and, and they describe this new conspiracism as conspiracy without the theory. So it's a type of conspiracy theory that's not based on, you know, the sort of meticulous, obsessive research, like, you know, like the JFK conspiracy stuff, you know, where people can spend, you know, decades pouring over files and, um, you know, looking at maps of the grassy knoll and all that kind of stuff. It's not like that at all. It's just a case of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. So a kind of fire hose of, of misinformation. And that's what we saw develop in the, the, the mega online world. And then especially the Pizzagate and QAnon style conspiracism. And, but at the same time though, Field says that there are these, what she calls highbrow theorists. And, you know, some of these are professors and journalists who are providing or have been providing a sort of theoretical backdrop to all of this as a way of creating a larger um, narrative that takes advantage of this um, underlying, um, you know, uh, environment of misinformation. Um, and she says that these conspiracists use the technique of, of hyper abstraction. So they make grandiose abstract claims without really backing them up at all. Or some some cases, the evidence they provide is just st sort of stuff dredged up from this world of conspiracism. Um, so she says, uh, I'll, I'll quote her here. She says, whereas the new conspiracism that Moorhead and Rosenblum describe involves flagrant fabrication, the intellectual conspiracism of the new right involves theoretical claims backed up by bad arguments and scant evidence. Under Trump, these two distinct ideational universes worked in syncopation. They were constituted differently, uh, but typically they shared the same targets, played off the same conservative tropes, and had the same disorienting effects. So um, she divides them into three groups, and, and there's, she says there's the nationalists, the pseudo-republicans, and the re religious traditionalists. And it's the last group where we find the, uh, you know, the Catholic version of this. Um, and these are people who, she says, they, the characteristic of this type of highbrow conspiracism is the over-ascription of secret malicious intentionality, coordination, and control to an already powerful group or institution. So they're basically and that was a quote there, they're basically exaggerating um, the amount of coordination that's going on in, in, uh, among their, their enemies. And she identifies uh, Patrick Deneen and, and Adrian Vermul as being part of this last group. And I think we could definitely add uh, Sorab Amari. I think he really encapsulates this idea where he's writing this sort of high-minded stuff about tradition. He's got like a new book out um, right now. At the same time, he's working for the New York Post, kind of, you know, putting out this sort of muckraking political stuff uh, that's, you know, very uh, populist, conservative in orientation. Um, so the she she says that, you know, there's, there's three sort of techniques that they use. And one of them is, 
exaggerated attacks on the the political opposition. And you see this all the time when, and, and I've seen Deneen and Vermul and Amari do this all the time, but they they play up this idea that the left, you know, and they're never specific about what the left actually means. Um, you know, they that the left seeks to destroy America seeks to destroy Western civilization to, you know, eradicate religion and the family and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, there's exaggerated attacks on existing institutions. So like the idea that the universities are completely filled with left wing, left wing radicals who just brainwash students and, and then send them out into the world. Um, and then there's exaggerated attacks on the, the political system itself. So the idea that, like elections are just illusions that the outcome is is all controlled by the elites. Um, and I think it comes back to this, this idea of Christendom that we were talking about and that when you have this sort of imaginary Christendom, um, cause it, it seems like these guys really believe that, um, you know, the in integralist vision, um, is one where, uh, one of imposing, um, Catholicism by, um, I won't necessarily say by force, but but through um, laws and institutions, and um, not through evangelization. Um, pressure. It's pressure. It's, yes, it's it, rather pressure. than uh, it's imposition rather than proposition. Yes, exactly. So it's you know if if we can change the laws, if we can get a hold of the reins of power, we can essentially. Um, force people to believe um, because they're all stupid anyway, and uh, yeah, <laughs> they'll they'll do whatever uh, the, the elites tell them to. Now, if we can become the elites, we can tell them to do things, right? If if, if the goal is power, right, then the, then the mission is coercion. That's the whole point. Right? Yes, which yes, is, um, which goes against it was in, um, and maybe this is a side tangent, but I don't care. Um, no, that's it, all right. It was in. Pope Francis's letter about St. Joseph back in December. Um, yeah. He had a paragraph where he was talking about the, the title of, of, of Joseph as most chaste. Like, what does that mean? He divine the Pope defines chastity as um, love free from possessiveness that does not desire to control the other, that respects the other's freedom. So he says, God loves us with, with the most perfectly chaste love, because he respects our freedom. But that is the heart of chastity, which goes against all of this, right? Which goes against all of this idea that we need to like grasp as much power as we can to like force the world to be right or force the world to be good. I mean, this sounds like uh, what the what, what, what conservatives are afraid of when it comes to communism, right? That yeah. they're trying to force people to all do the right thing. It, it really connects actually with the uh, older anti-communist um, sentiment, like especially the really extreme anti-communism um, that, that used to exist in, in the United States. Um, and, you know, I think one of the ways that they try to give themselves legitimacy and try to make people think that this is the only way that um, the church can actually have any influence in the world is they portray their enemies um, and usually this means liberalism in general. Usually this means the left. Usually this is, it could mean like, you know, Black Lives Matter. It could mean, you know, whatever. Um, you have to portray them as being purely destructive, as being um, driven only by um, hatred, right? Like, um, and you, you, and this is, this is 
part of the, I think a real characteristic of this type of thinking is that you, you generalize so much that you, you lose sight of the humanity of the people that you're talking about. Um, and I, I saw this, and this is a bit of a thing that I like to go back to, cause you know, it just, it really bothered me when it happened. <laughs> um, this was one of the, the narratives that I know Adrian Vermul often pushes is that liberalism, um, seeks to lower the age of consent and make pedophilia acceptable in Western society, right? So this is a narrative that he he's constantly pushing, um, it, it seems anyway. And I don't know if you remember back with, with the Cuties controversy, there was this film Cuties that came out on Netflix. Um, and, and you it, caught a lot of heat for... Uh, I caught a lot of heat, yeah, yeah. Because I, yeah. I was defending this film, because I actually... I sat down. I watched it. I'm like, all right, I gotta check this I out. I just, I just want to jump in right here as the yeah, editor, yeah. as the editor in chief yeah. <laughs> of where Peter is. I do not control the Twitter accounts <laughs> yes. of the other contributors. They speak for themselves, and it's yeah. not just the cuties thing. But it's like I've had <laughs> Anything, people yeah. no, come no. to me and say. <laughs> Hey, you guys like cuties? And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And just like, I'm sure he's got his reasons, and I'm sure there's a whole argument behind it. I don't want to be the one to give that. I, and and, I, and you defend, you exonerate yourself very well when people I, ask yeah. you. The problem is, they're also asking me. Yes, yes. So I I take this entirely upon myself. That's entirely and and actually. I totally admit that if like if people are uncomfortable with cuties and don't think it was a you know an appropriate film, I think that's fine because it it shows or Hans some, Kung or Hans Kung, yeah. People, or I, Hans hey, Kung. I, I like my I like my Hans Kung now and then, right? You know, but um, so but anyway, the, this this cuties thing it was portrayed by conservative media as an attempt by kind of the Hollywood elites to. Um, uh, get people used to the idea of uh, underage girls' um, sexuality, right? Now, if you if anyone if you looked into it, you'd realize okay, that's the film was actually trying to do the opposite. It wasn't actually an American production; it was a French production um, by a woman who was from uh, Senegal originally, and she was the director. It was actually a, a film that critiqued this whole idea of how Western capitalism tends to sexualize women at a younger and younger age, and how this stuff gets spread around on TikTok, and then these these girls get kind of caught up in it, and they end up really embarrassing themselves, and you know, learning this you know, moral lesson in the end about um, not kind of giving into this sort of Western um, sexualization. Um, now, so that was the actual message of the film, but, and, it, you know, you, and, but some people in this, and, and Vermeer was doing this, were would not stop pushing this idea that it was Hollywood elites trying to legitimize pedophilia or make people get used to pedophilia. And, that was just false. It was just, it was a misrepresentation, a lie. Um, and it's because, you know, that's part of the, uh, I think it seems to be anyway, part of the, the integralist, um, method is you, you make liberals and you make liberalism seem as degenerate and awful as possible and, um, make it seem like, the elites who are always, you know, liberals are, are using these sort of techniques as a kind of like mind control to get people used to degeneracy. Um, right. Um, now, if you look at the, the reality of liberalism, you'd know that, you know, 
yes, the there's a certain um, openness towards um, sexuality that comes with liberalism, but it's it's not quite in the way they imagine, right? Like uh, with liberalism, you also get the intense focus on consent, right? On um, like to to an extent that conservatives have even critiqued that the the idea that um, you know both parties in a sexual relationship have to be consenting adults. Um, and so uh, liberalism, it's got that sort of inbuilt um, protection against any kind of sexualization of children in many ways. I think what they're actually talking about is how capitalism can sometimes, um, you know, drive us towards these sexualized images because that's what sells, right? Um, it's it's not so much liberalism, it's, it's capitalism. Um, but that again, that doesn't fit into the narrative that they're trying to, to put forward. And so they want to make things seem so terrible, like we're just on the verge of total degeneracy, societal collapse. You know, we've got rioters, you know, smashing everything. And we've got people trying to, you know, turn us into pedophiles. And, um, you know, there's all these attacks on the family and we've got the drag queens at the libraries trying to like indoctrinate our kids or whatever, right? That's the image of the outside world that they portray. And then they, they pitch this idea of integralism as the only solution. And it's going to be something that's going to have to be brought in sort of by force because you're not going to be able to dialogue with any of these people right but that's the narrative that i think um pope francis has completely exploded uh, he he wants to talk with people he wants to talk with all kinds of people it's interesting because with Vermeule, like i i wasn't familiar with him prior to his conversion to catholicism and one of his things when he first became catholic was the was his proud ultramontanism which is a term that i don't personally subscribe to but is you know obviously all of us are are used to hearing that from from critics of of where peter is but one of the things that really kind of troubled me early on was uh or the first chink that i mean eventually he blocked us and he was bad mouthing us and and say you know now he like can't stand us even though here we here we are doing the same thing that we've been doing since the beginning but um was uh the the mortara case the um uh, first things this is uh what was his name eduardo e- e- edgar uh mortara he was a he was a jewish boy who was baptized by his catholic nurse in spain i believe and because he was at, uh, he was threatened with death or you know he was he was at death's door and he wound up he wound up surviving and after that the nurse then went to um the church officials and said i baptized this boy he's he's christian and the parents were jewish and they weren't going to convert to christianity and so what wound up happening i mean looking back at it this was during the time of pius the ninth the second half of the the 20th century um pius the ninth wound up adopting him uh and he was removed by force by church officials um and raised i guess in in vatican you know in vatican territory um and eventually became a priest and and you know i don't know a ton about what happened to him later but first things several years ago i want to say three about three years ago wrote a piece defending what uh the church did uh, you know basically defending the kidnapping or, or the denial of the parental rights 
of the and I guess there's this whole symbolic argument about you know he he's a Christian and therefore he has a right to a Christian upbringing and but it was also you know he was turned against his parents his parents didn't consent and and I remember Adrian actually defended what happened back in the 19th century and I you know that seemed incongruent with you know anything I mean, yeah. If you want to be an, an ultra Montanist, well, think about what would Pope Francis say? Is there any way in a million years he would um, approve of that? No, I can't imagine that. There's just no possible way. Well, I can't even see Pius the Twelfth doing. No, that. no, no. I mean, you know that, that, and that, you know, three Piuses later, that never would have happened, and probably, you know, I doubt Pius the Eleventh would have gone. Pius the Tenth might have been okay with it, but <laughs> Pius the Eleventh, I don't even think would have been okay with it. Um, uh, yeah. Were you about to say something? Yeah, I won't go back, David, to um, what you were saying because I'm not, I'm not nearly as on Twitter as this. Like, I've heard you talk about Adrian Vermeule, and I'm like, okay, he's a person. Um, but the way that you talked about the way that conservatives talk about the left, as if there's this agenda going on, and um, like that's what I was raised in, right? That that. That was my formation in Catholicism. So as you're speaking, Me I'm too. like, yeah, I'm like putting dots together. Um, like at some point I realized, cause I was very, very involved in the pro-life movement uh, in college. At some point I realized after college that much of the pro-life movement, at least the circles I was involved in, was more concerned with hating liberals than it was with actually like, promoting human rights and that and that really disturbed me right even when i was very conservative at that point like that's not right but your description of you know like you know the drag queens and libraries and all this kind of stuff like i bought into that 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 was a like actual agenda right for a long time but now looking back how how much of a leap is it to go from that to QAnon to these liberal elites have kidnapped all these kids and put them in bunkers as their sex slaves and are like harvesting well, their like adrenaline? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Drag um, Queen Story Hour is a thing. It like, is a real it, thing. Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a question of whether it's part of a yeah, know, so, grand so, conspiracy. Yeah. Or, or so there's a central thing controlling but, it. But but the way that I was formed, the way that it was talked about, and what I believed was there is this homogenous left that has this like coordinated agenda. And in and the um and harming kids, especially sexually, is part of their agenda. Right. <laughs> and it's yeah. easy for me to see how someone can go from that, where what I believed for a long time to QAnon. It's not a big jump. Yeah, it's it's not a, it's not a big jump. And uh, I mean, there are genuine um, concerns, you know, that people can have with liberalism, of course, like um, and and with leftism or or whatever. And the right? Sexualization um, of kids, like absolutely. Well, yeah, obviously, yeah, yeah. Chastity isn't isn't the left's highest priority. No, it's it's not the left's highest priority. That. That, but then again, you know, there's there's other. You look and you say, okay, well, there's actually these other sort of corresponding positive things, like 
it's with liberalism, like in the 1960s and after that you get um, people recognizing the phenomenon of child abuse and, and um, first of all, parental child abuse, so abuse of children, and then institutional child abuse. These were the big topics among, you know, liberal academics and like sociology and um, that sort of thing. And they were the ones who brought attention to it. Um, so that when we start thinking about things like age of consent and uh, child abuse and the the trauma that it can inflict, the lasting trauma. Um, we're, we're into the realm of sort of liberal psychology, social psychology. Um, and that's, I mean, we can't say that conservatives have been very good in that regard. They've, they've sort of pushed that stuff under the table. So, you know, if it, if it happens, well, it shouldn't even talk about it. Um, you know, that sort of attitude. And uh, sometimes allowing it to, to, to thrive um, because it wasn't exposed. So I think it's, that's the thing is that it's always so much more complicated than they'll make it seem. Now, I got to admit, I bought into this stuff too. Like I, you know, like Adrian is a, a professor and um, some of these other, like uh, I think Patrick Deneen is a, a professor. And and I know that when you're in liberal academia and it is heavily, heavily liberal, it's, you know, there's, um, that's for sure. You can feel like you're a real like minority there. You can sometimes feel like you're being persecuted. Um, and and I've, I've experienced that. And I also I also had that sort of reaction that I would went right to the most reactionary sort of intellectualism that I could find as a way of compensating and sort of trying to find an intellectual tradition that I could use to fight back. Um, but then I realized this is me and my own insecurities at play here. Like I'm not really um, I'm, I'm presenting myself in an antagonistic way, and I'm making huge generalizations about people. Um, and so over time that's broken down and I've realized, okay, you know, if I present myself as a Catholic, as a Christian, but do it in a respectful way, in a way that's where I'm like open to dialogue, open to other people's thinking, things actually usually work out pretty well. You know, if you come into it with the idea that, you know, all the people you're talking with in academia are, you know, evil Marxists who are, you know, out to destroy Western civilization, then you're, you're going to have trouble because, you know, they'll pick up on that and they'll, they're, they're not going to respond well to it. That's just human nature. So I think, um, yeah, I, I worry about this kind of stuff and this sort of conspiracism because like, like you guys too, you know, we've, I think we've all had a taste of it. We've all, um, been there at one time or another, um, but I think, you know, for me anyway, Pope Francis was the guy who helped me come out of that because um, I had to, to deal with certain things like that he was saying that um, didn't really fit into my idea of my sort of reactionary frame of mind. And uh, that helped sort of break it apart. So I think, you know, the, to me, the biggest antidote to that sort of thinking has been just to listen to the Pope, try to understand on a surface level what he's trying to, to tell us and, and then try to put that into our own thinking in our own lives. Well, I think we're, uh, over, and I want to we're say over time. Yeah. we are way over time. Yeah. Sorry guys, that, that should go, that should have gone during the, the Patreon bonus 10 minutes, but it's okay. Good stuff. Um, Paul, where, where, where can we find you? Where, uh, where can our, where can our, uh, listeners and viewers, where can they, where can they find the, the next of your projects? Probably at where Peter is. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah probably. <laughs> um, 
David, what 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 do we have planned for next week? Um, next week uh, we're going to have uh, another guest. Um, uh, Brett um, is going to be on the show, and um, he's Soft Gold. Yes, I, I, I didn't know how to pronounce his name. Salkeld, 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 Salkeld. Yes, and he's written some great stuff on conspiracism that I that you know both you and I, Mike, have found really interesting. And um, I should say I am working on something um, to follow later on on liberal conspiracy theories regarding the church. Um, I'm I'm currently investigating um, the conspiracy theories surrounding the mysterious death of. Pope John Paul the first. And, uh, it's, it's fascinating how this, uh, this was a huge thing in the eighties. Um, and, uh, it, it played into a lot of, uh, liberal concerns. Um, and, and it's sort of the same kind of thing, but from, from an opposite, opposite angle. And, and, uh, maybe we can uh, do an episode on that, uh, in the near future. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, watching and listening, uh, to our, to our viewers and listeners i guess the who watched and listened um anyway uh until next time god bless and uh and and take care and and here's our little our little goodbye song see you later